Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Jenny Day about her new book, Qing Travelers to the Far West, Diplomacy and the Information Order in Late Imperial China. It came out in 2018 with Cambridge University Press. The book examines the careers and writings of six Qing envoys and diplomats during the late 19th century. Each figure highlights a different approach to representing the West and changes in Qing diplomacy and communication, such as the transition from traveling envoys to the establishment of permanent legations and the use of envoy journals as the main way to share information to the transformation of diplomatic communication with the telegraph and the introduction of new diplomatic genres of writing. This was a really enjoyable interview, so without further ado, please enjoy. Hello, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Today we're talking to Dr. Jenny Day about her book, Qing Travelers to the Far West, Diplomacy and the Information Order in Late Imperial China. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, uh, we like to begin our podcast by just having you introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, tell us about any kind of relevant background. Where are you coming from? Okay, um, absolutely. So um, I grew up in a small town in South China, in Guilin, and um, I went to the UW in Seattle right after high school. Um, in my first couple years of the UW, I focused mostly on maths and the sciences, and it wasn't really until the third year of college that I saw that my true passion, of course, was in the humanities and the social sciences, or what the Chinese would call uh, culture subjects, wenke. And, um, and I think that reflecting on why I came into history, it might have to do with the fact that history was an extremely sensitive subject, and still is in China. And it was taught in a self-evident manner um, in my high school. It was almost designed to drive out students' sense of curiosity. Um, and it was something that even back then it was obvious 
Um, the history was used to stabilize society, to moralize, and to entertain the public. And you're never really supposed to raise big questions. And so when that lack of history of China, in my knowledge, finally became apparent, and it was really immediately apparent uh, when I took my first class at the UW in Chinese history, and it was certainly apparent when I first walked down the creaky stairs of the East Asian Library at Gowan Hall, um, it was quite shocking that I hadn't really, I hadn't really seen it all these years. And so I remember um, walking into Hat Ibri's office one morning without even making an appointment. Um, it was extremely kind of her to talk to me. And I said that I wanted to study Chinese history and how it was perceived historically in China. Uh, and she was immediately supportive of that. Um, and I think that that was one of the reasons that I wanted to make the switch uh, from physics to history. Even though I didn't end up studying um, the reception or the perception of history, I'm still very grateful of the kind attention that Professor Ibri gave me in my first year as a student of history. And then I took every single course in Chinese history that could fit my schedule with, with Ken Gai, with Madeline Doan, and with Pat Ibri, and um, went to a couple of graduate seminars as well. And at the end of my third year, I decided to switch from physics to Asian studies. And after that, I went to UCSD for my doctoral degree. And so this was how I got into um, the field of Chinese history, through a bit of detour, but I'm really glad of the detour and the extra steps that I had taken to see the world through other lenses. Um, I think it's fair to say that I came into the field with a lot of big questions about myself and the knowledge framework that I had received in the Chinese state-sponsored education system. Um, and um, and I, I think that might have indirectly led me to my dissertation subject. Yeah, and I assume that is the the core of your book that you've now come out with, right? Would yeah. you like to tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Um, yes. Um, so the book is based on my dissertation, which I completed in 2012. Um, as I mentioned, I became really fascinated in China's past that was hidden to me when I was in China. And I was also very interested in the question of the self and the other, and how these were constructed in transnational cross-cultural dialogues, um, especially the phenomenon that the self only becomes the self when the other comes into the picture. At the same time, I also wondered about what happens when people try to get their ideas across pretty wide cultural gaps, both historically and at present. For example, when I try to relate my experiences in the U.S. to friends and family back in China, it became really obvious that the process was a lot more than just finding the right Chinese words for English expressions. The messages had to be reinvented within the local environment of the Chinese dialect, and very often these reinventions distorted the original meanings. And so I started wondering, okay, so if it were so difficult for a modern bilingual student to convey her observations in the U.S. to people in China, what about the first Chinese travelers who had set foot in industrialized Europe in the 19th century? And what if they knew that whatever they wrote down would be scrutinized by everyone and might have great consequences? The stakes were huge. 
And, and so at first, those were the questions. And I had simply wanted to study how the first Chinese travelers perceived the West. But then this immediately called for more questions, because how did they see the West exactly? Well, it depended on how they positioned themselves to the subjects of seeing, whether as private travelers, as students, as envoys, or diplomats, and so on. And I came to see that there was really no fixed Chinese way of looking at the West. Um, and, and also there's a question, to what extent was what they wrote down a faithful representation of what they saw and what they thought? And are we sure that what they wrote down at the time is what we read today in these nicely printed volumes with footnotes and all? It turned out that prints and editions can play tricks on our understanding of their experiences. And finally, um, there is the saying that the medium is the message. To what extent were the messages conditioned by the medium through which they communicated, whether by the envoy journal, by letters, memorials delivered by steam-powered postal service, um, or by telegraph, or by newspaper? And so there's no easy answer to these questions, but we can make educated guesses. And so that's how I came to write this book, is to make some educated guesses about the process of communication. Yeah, uh, and these are some very interesting questions. And your book looks at a very interesting time period for the Qing when they're first sending out envoys and diplomats uh, into Europe. So I'm wondering if you can uh, kind of sketch out for us what are some of the different considerations that these diplomats had? Uh, what kinds of people and institutions did they have to uh, talk to back in China? Um, what kinds of interests did those groups have? You were talking about the medium and the audience. Um, what kinds of more specific uh, issues are, are you going to be seeing during this time period? Sure. Um, so what I'm doing in this book is to tell the story of how the Qing engaged with Europe on their home front, as opposed to how Westerners engage with the Qing in China, which many studies have already dealt with. And I'm doing this on two levels. On the macro level, I'm tracing the impact of new institutions such as the dispatch of diplomatic missions and later the stationing of permanent legations and consulates. So the impact of these on the practice of diplomacy and the perception and representation of the West. This larger story is built upon a series of case studies and each chapter then deals with an important individual from the mid-1860s to the mid-1890s. These decades fall into what's generally considered a period of lull, stagnation in historiography because they're bookended by well, two wars, the Second Opium War and the Sino-Japanese War, both of which China lost quite dramatically. But a lot of changes were happening beneath the surface, and there was no collective imagination and there was no dominant discourse about the West that everybody subscribed to in this period. Everyone had their own way of conceptualizing the West, and the level of fluidity, ambivalence, and heterogeneity was astonishing and, and really quite fun to look at. Um, that, was, that was actually the problem for the Zongyaman, because 
information gathered from these different sources, whether from missionary accounts, newspapers, um, Western diplomats, or provincial Chinese officials who were consulting these sources, these different kinds of information were written in such different ways. They were either written in a way that threatened Neo-Confucianism as a state ideology, or they were full of misinformation um, or what was taken as exaggerations. And so what motivated the Zhong Yemen's to start sending their own agents abroad is to uh, the desire to collect trustworthy information and to verify the information from home sources. Um, so that was a sort of a background um, as to the question of, you know, what were these people? Um, in the first 10 years, the agents that are being sent abroad were mostly chosen from the banner system, uh, Manchu bannermen, Han bannermen, uh, Mongol bannermen, and many of them were affiliated with the ruling house, um, either a relative of somebody, someone from, um, uh, you know, a, a relative of a prince or someone from one of the more prominent and trust, uh, trusted lineages within the eight banners. And as the legation system was established, we start to see diplomats. Um, um, we start to have diplomats as a profession, and there began to be a competitive process for selecting resident ministers. And from that point on, we start to see provincial authorities competing with the Zongli Yamen, competing with sometimes um, the Empress Dowager Cixi, or the throne, uh, and exerting an influence on how diplomats were selected. Mm, excellent. Uh, and one other thing I'd like to touch on before we talk about a few of these different uh, envoys and diplomats is the this theme, this topic that you have in your book about information and communication. You've brought in uh, a literature that looks at communication uh, and a kind of lens and I'm wondering what that has done for your book uh, by thinking about uh, not just what kinds of ideas uh, do these diplomats have about the West, but also how they are trying to express it, um, the medium uh, that you referred to just now. Mm -hmm. um, what do you find happens over these 30 years that you're looking at? Right. So this is also um, a book about communication. Um, how messages were encoded, transmitted, and then decoded by travelers and diplomats and their readers. Um, the agents that the Qing sent out to Europe were generally politically astute, and they were extremely conscious of the discursive effects of their writing. And, and so you see that they used a wide range of genres to deliver their messages. They wrote envoy journals. That was actually a requirement. Everybody had to deliver one of these journals. Well, but then later on, you see that the Zongli Yaman became not as interested in looking at them anymore because they had other information. Um, but everybody, from the, from the beginning of the mission, they wrote envoy journals, they wrote travelogues. Um, of course, they wrote letters, memorials. And then from the 1880s on, telegrams became the most important medium for transmitting information. And so that was one of the big changes that I examined in the book, the effects um, that these changes in medium have on representation of the West, especially 
telegrams, which facilitated very timely, short, and strategic information. And after that point, envoy journals really declined in their importance. Okay, great. Well, I think that gives us a good basis uh, to understand what your book is about. And I think it'd be interesting now to delve into some of the examples, some of the people that you looked into. Uh, so let's start with your first chapter. Uh, and for each chapter, you, uh, you're, you're kind of going chronologically to an extent, but right. also uh, you're choosing different roles that these various envoys and diplomats seemed to inhabit and how those are developing over time. Uh, from maybe kind of a more traditional Qing envoy to to a different kind of diplomat uh, in the West. Uh, so let's start out with, again, chapter one, The Traveler, um, about Binchun, uh, a Chinese bannerman who was traveling to Britain in 1866 uh, with Robert Hart, who was the head of the Maritime Customs Service uh in China, uh, and he was returning to Britain and was taking some Chinese students with him. Um, and as pretty much the first Qing envoy to Europe, how, is, how does Bin Chun approach this visit? What kinds of forms does his writing take? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? How does he try to kind of situate himself um, in regards to his various audiences? That was a big theme of this chapter. Sure. Um, Bing Chun was um, a retired bannerman of Han descent who was hired by the Zhongli Yemen as a language tutor for Robert Hart. He was quite elderly if you look at his pictures. Um, he was in his 60s. Um, and I was struck by two things about his accounts. The first thing was just how positive, a bit cloying at times, his, uh, his depiction of the West was. He painted it with lavish poetic imagery with references drawn from Buddhist and Confucian canons and popular novels. And he was on very friendly terms with all of the European dignitaries that he interacted with. And the second thing that I was struck by was how different the receptions of, of his literary output was. It was encoded in apparently very different ways and allowed for a multiplicity of receptions. For example, his elite friends loved his literary novelty and, and elegance and the images of the exotic West. And the Zhongli Yaman officials used it to justify their plans to further engage with the West diplomatically and maybe even to send out permanent legations. The early Meiji reformers used his accounts to spur their own government into modernization. They even reprinted his account with illustrations. Um, but it was also criticized by officials such as Li Hongzhang, who had hoped to see something a bit more original, something that might prompt the government to undertake more ambitious projects. But instead, he found it filled with these old tropes and written in an extremely cautious way so as not to alienate any reader, Chinese or European. Um, and 20th century historians also criticized his accounts for not being able to see anything of real interest in the West. And so I found the multiplicity of the responses very interesting. What it means is that the original texts afforded many interpretive possibilities, 
potentials. And so um, in this chapter, I examined his life, his activities on the trip, and his literary production to show um, that he intended for the text to speak in different ways to different people. Um, for example, he wrote many palace poems about the different kinds of women he socialized with, especially ladies who were fascinated by and admired Chinese culture. And he talked about men as well, but um, he paid attention to women a lot more. And so in a way, by emphasizing interaction with women, he's actually painting Western society as a society of women. Uh, by and, and he feminized and tamed European societies and uh, made it m- a lot more acceptable to these more Confucian traditional Chinese literati. Um, and it was also meant to bolster a sense of cultural superiority by providing the evidence that Chinese learning had spread to foreign countries. But at the same time, he also dropped hints at various places in his book that changes and cataclysmic changes were about to happen and things are not the same as before and that the government should be aware of recent events such as the um, Second Opium War. And and so uh, in this book, I, I looked at his poems and his prose and examined how he conveyed these different messages to different readers. And so that was one of the main things that I did in this book. Yeah. Uh, and in your second chapter, you turn to someone that you refer to as the envoy. Um, this was uh, the Manchu envoy on something that's kind of commonly referred to as the Burlingame mission, uh, because it was led by an, an American diplomat named Anson Burlingame. But there were actually quite a few uh, Qing students and envoys along on that trip as well. Uh, so you focus on one of them. Um, and I'm wondering if you can introduce uh, this envoy, Zhigang, and what is his, what are his interests during this trip? What are his concerns? And how does his writing about this trip, um, what does it look like? Maybe how does it compare a little bit to uh, Ben Cheng, who we just talked about? Sure. Um So in this chapter, my main goal was, um, as you said, to restore, in a sense, the Qing agency to the so-called Burlingame mission, which was a three-year diplomatic mission led by Anson Burlingame, and and really to show the experience of its Manchu leader, uh, a man named Zhigang. And um, here again, my emphasis was on how Zhigang made sense of the West, and I found that the conceptual tools that he used were deeply rooted in the Lu Wang school of New Confucianism, the so-called Xinxue, or the school of the mind heart. This was a school that basically says that knowledge is innate, and to learn, one only needs to wake up to what one already knows. So in Zhigang's case, um, the Lu Wang school is not an obstacle to, to knowing because you see him clearly writing down you know, what amounts to the principle of galvanism, fluid dynamics, thermodynamics. Um, and although he doesn't always have the right terms, his approximations are actually pretty sound. And he was very conscious of his Manchu identity. 
um, but at the same time, he was, he was also a follower of a Chinese school of learning. But ultimately, I, I find it important how he positioned himself in a very different way from what Bing Chun had done. He was not a traveler. Um, he was not really a diplomat either, but an envoy, a shi very similar to those who had headed Song Dynasty missions to the courts of Jing and Liao. Most of his written records was an account of his performance, his public performance as an envoy. And there were these subtle and sometimes not, not quite so subtle gestures that alluded to it. At one point, he pinned a nosegay on his hat um, in the same way that Song envoys had done at the banquets of the Jurchen rulers of the Jing dynasty. And this was during a, uh, a banquet, I, I think, in the, uh, in the United States. He also engaged in many debates with Christian missionaries about human nature, about morality, about cosmology. And the way he recorded these debates was also heavily influenced by the tradition of envoy writing. So returning to the question of how did he see the West and, and how historians can reconstruct the traveler's experience from their written records, I think it's very important that we do not assume that there is a direct and transparent relationship between what happened and what ended up being on the written, written record. Um, it's very important that we try to restore the context of their performance, the audience, the historical connections that were in the minds of these travelers. The Qing's dispatch of the Birmingham mission was not actually that groundbreaking or novel if we look at the internal debates. Most of the concerns actually had to do with whether these missions are going to be productive or not, given the Qing's naval weakness and the lack of uh, Chinese translators. Very often, modern readers and contemporary Westerners are very eager to know exactly what they thought about the West, and they delve into the texts to find these answers. But a text is a performance. A journey is a performance, too, especially in, in Zhigang's case. The Envoy Journal um, that he wrote is a very different genre from the private diary of the Europeans. And so we have to understand the context and how the text takes on a life of its own once it's released from the hands of the author. And that's one of the reasons that I spent a couple of sections in this chapter on the afterlife of Zhigong's journal in the hands of friends, editors, and booksellers who made his texts um, say very different things. And I find that to be fascinating. Hmm. Uh, okay, let's turn to your third chapter now. Um, and this uh, particular person, the student, uh, Zhang Deyi, uh, has a very long career in, as an envoy, as a diplomat uh, in Europe. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, him, give us a brief overview. And you also referred to him, you give him a couple more attributions, yeah. uh, the collector of curios, the cosmopolitan traveler. What do these, or how do these additional attributes um, impact the image or the images of the West that he's presenting? So with Zhen Yi, we're looking really at a different generation now, um, a, a much younger traveler who was only, I think, 16 when he embarked on the first journey. 
And as you said, he titled all of his journals Records of Curiosities and Shuqi.、Uh, Um, and he followed a very different rationale in recording the West. He purposefully recorded everything that was deemed trivial in the eyes of Confucian scholars:、um, rules of courtship, dance, meanings of different flowers, children's toys, gambling rules, and it was sometimes quite frustrating just how oblivious he could be about the intense political discussions that were going on around him. But over time,、um, you see remarkable changes in how he made use of these trivialities. In his first couple of traveling missions, he was collecting trivia for the sake of their novelty. But as soon as he understood that maybe he was going to have a career in the diplomatic service, and especially after the establishment of permanent legations, his journal took on a new meaning. He still filled them with. Mundane notes on everyday matters, but these were no longer trivial. They became a vast information repository, covering every aspect pertaining to the running of the legations. And so, in a way,、um, Zhang's maturity, his growth from a student to a diplomat, is also the story of development of the Qing's foreign service.、Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com/system. And one thing I wanted to touch upon, in addition to what you've just said, you briefly mentioned that he's、uh, kind of this new generation, this younger generation of envoys. And you indicated at one point in this chapter that、uh, John seemed to internalize Western customs and feel more comfortable abroad in China,、uh, or, or yeah, more abro- comfortable abroad than in China, and that you thought. Other student interpreters、uh, probably or may have felt the same. Why do you think that is? Right,、um, so that's a very good observation.、Um, so、um, that was one of the points I wanted to get across was was how Zhang's construct of the West was inseparable from、um, a simultaneous reconceptualization of China as a member of the international community. Before he embarked on these missions, he had never really received. Rigorous training in the Confucian classics, and yet he found himself as a spokesperson for the Confucian classics、um, to to introduce、um, the canons Confucianism to the West. So, in coming up with these answers, he was also searching for an image of China that was consistent with Western imagination, and so he often resorted to these easily identifiable core values. Such as the three bonds or the five relationships, that in a way dump down the rich complexity and subtlety of Chinese culture,、um, and he was very proud of his ability to educate Westerners about China.、Um, but one of the points that I make in this chapter is his conception of Chinese culture was actually closer to an Orientalized form of knowledge about China. A very telling example is when he was arguing with 
Japanese students about the origin of Confucianism. The Japanese said that it was derived from the teaching of their long uh, line of emperors. And he said that it was from well, the Chinese four books and the five classics. And in this debate, somehow it was the national affiliation of these teachings that mattered most to them. Which country could claim ownership of these teachings? And that strikes me as something of a non-question, because the more learned Confucian scholars of his time were arguing that, in fact, China had already lost the Confucian way and that it was now possessed by the West. And as you see over time, what happens is that his lack of classical training did become a problem for his career, especially in the 1880s and the 1890s when overseas positions were in high demand among well-trained officials. And so that's a topic that I also deal with in the subsequent chapters. Okay, excellent. Let's uh, talk about your fourth chapter, The Scholar. Sure. Uh, and this one is about Guo Songtao, uh, China's first minister to Europe, to Britain and France in the late 1870s. And in this chapter, you're using him to talk about the establishment of permanent legations um, in Europe um, and kind of the logistics of that and communicating back to to the Qing emperor and the Zongliaman. So I'm wondering if you can talk about um, what kinds of issues arise uh, with the creation of the legations um, in regards to staffing, to communication. Um, how does Guo deal with all this? Okay. Um, so with chapter four, we're looking at a new institution that China had never seen, the permanent legation led by a resident minister. This chapter glides between two levels of narrative, on the institutional level and on the individual level to show their interconnections. The um, distinction between one-time missions, uh, which I primarily deal with in the first three chapters, and the permanent negations, which I deal with in the second half of the book, in chapter four to six, um, that distinction is, is pretty important. The former was on the move and didn't really constitute an office. And it was primarily the written accounts that they submitted after the mission that mattered. The latter, the permanent negation, was a geographical extension of the Qing bureaucracy. And legations were actually equal uh, to the Zongliaman in their access to the throne. And this is very different from European system where the foreign office was the center of information order. Everything had to go through the foreign office and they integrate the the information, and then they come up with solutions. Um, but in the Qing system, it was very possible for the ministers from the legations to send a memorial directly to the throne. And in some cases, the Zongliaman ministers would not be aware of that. And this was a somewhat challenging chapter to write because so much has been written on Guo Songtao. Um, although most of what's written had to do with his steamship voyage from Shanghai to London based on a portion of his journal. In this journal, he glorifies European culture and it was subsequently banned from 
circulation. Um, and so the fate of Guo's journal has become the standard trope of the Qing's conservative mentality and the inability to accept Western culture. And so um, this chapter is also an attempt to address that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's interesting that you bring up that this, particularly this one section of his journal um, gets highlighted because in your chapter in the latter portion, you deal with some of the unpublished parts of Guo's journal. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little about what you found in in those parts of the journal that didn't uh, get published. Sure. Um, And so what I did was um, I examined both the um, the later part of the journal that um, that he wrote while he was in London, and also um, going back about ten to fifteen years, he had a lifetime habit of, of of keeping journals. And so I examined both parts of his journal, and um, I made three main observations about um, you know his distinct ways of thinking about the West. Um, the first point that I made was his understanding of the rise of the West was actually deeply influenced by the rebellion and his conviction as a loyalist defender of the Qing that the, that the dynasty had effectively lost the way and that the way had gone to the West. Um, interestingly, he actually identified the way with imperialism and colonialism, which he had been led to appreciate by the influence of his British companions who made sure to downplay the negative effects of imperialism. So for a resident minister abroad, uh, this way of looking at Britain and imperialism was going to cause some problems and embarrassment for the Qing government. And that was one context for why Guo Songtao had such a troubled career abroad. Um, and the second point is the legation being a new institutional branch was just going through its very first incarnation. Many rules and expectations had not really been laid down regarding information gathering and communication network. The diplomats were told to keep a personal journal, but then the only rubric that the Zongliamen gave them was all matters, no matter how big or small. It was incredibly wide and vague. If we compare this to the tables of intelligence clearly laid out in contemporary British diplomatic reports, we can see that the Qing was still struggling to come to terms with how to use its overseas offices to gather the kinds of information the state needed. And this is what made Guo Songtao's account so controversial, because there was no consensus on what constituted useful intelligence, and there was no standardized discourse to talk about it. The discourse had yet to be invented, um, and I talk about this process in my last chapter, chapter six. The third point that I wanted to make regarding Guo Tao was that contrary to many um, works, Guo's journal was actually published by the Zhongli Yaman itself to promote knowledge about the West. We have to recognize that it was not published privately. In fact, Guo himself would probably shudder at the thought of having it published, and he was certainly taken by surprise when he heard the news that it was out. Although the book received a lot of criticism from Chinese officials, everyone was talking about it openly, and the ban 
uh, was simply not effective at all. In fact, the status of the book as a banned book only made it more popular. Only 10 years later, it was being presented to the emperor himself as a must-read account about the West. So much has been made about the fact that the book was banned, but if we look at its actual dissemination, we see that the ban did nothing to hurt its circulation. It only tells us how little the state enforced press censorship compared to contemporary Europe and Japan. Another point is that many foreign diplomats, especially the Dutch, were also critical of the extremely one-sided pro-Britain view it presented. And so these were some of the points um, that I presented in the chapter in relation to you know, the, the, the entirety of Guo's journal. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, so I think that the next chapter kind of pairs really well with this one. You were saying how the first three chapters are kind of talking about uh, more of these envoys who are visiting uh, Europe with the Guo Songtao, we see mm-hmm. permanent legations being established. And now in chapter five, you talk about another major shift in the way uh, that diplomacy is done, but this is in communication technology. So uh, you talk about the introduction of uh, the telegraph into uh, diplomatic communications. And you do this through uh, the figure of Zheng Jizi, uh, the son of Zheng Guofang. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about him uh, and talk about uh, how the telegraph impacted his communications uh, back to the Zongli Yaman and with the throne. Certainly. Um, to me, this this is the heart and the pivot of the entire book. It was a chapter that was missing from my dissertation, and because of that, the dissertation never felt complete. Um, here again, the narrative is, is, is on two levels. On the macro level, I talk about the emergence of Qing legations as a permanent stakeholder in the bureaucracy. I talk about the expansion of the diplomatic service to the wider educated class and the telegraph as a primary method of communication between diplomats abroad and the home office. These are interwoven with the story of Zheng Jizhe's development from a filial son of a Confucian general, the famous Zheng Guofan, um, to a diplomat in a real sense. So I, I make three main observations in this chapter. I argue that the 1880s was a period of massive change in the way information about the world was communicated. And in, in a sense, this was a global change for which China was not that far behind, maybe by 10, 20 years most. The Telegraph replaced the Envoy Journal as the primary medium of communication during this period. It was fast, it was accurate, but it had to be encoded and written in a very succinct and strategic way. Telegrams privileged a particular type of intelligence It privileged numbers, dates, actionable items, and decisions, but it doesn't really allow anything abstract or discursive. The adoption of telegraphic communication coincided with the arrival of Zheng Jizhe in London in 1879. So in many ways, his diplomatic activities in the Sino-Russian negotiation over Ili, um, his... um, diplomatic negotiation about Burma with with British uh, Foreign Office, and most famously, 
uh, he's dealing with uh, French in the Sino-French conflict, all had to do with the Qing's newfound ability to gain accurate and timely intelligence from its trusted agents abroad. The other change that I talk about in the book was the expansion of the diplomatic service to the wider educated class from the mid-1880s on. At this point, after 10 years, legation positions had become increasingly attractive to metropolitan degree holders, especially after the Sino-Japanese War, uh, sorry, the Sino-French War. There were proposals to streamline and integrate diplomatic service into the civil service examination system. There were also proposals to utilize legations as training grounds for future diplomats. Um, None of these attempts were very successful, but they all point to an awareness that diplomats were important to the Qing's political system and foreign policy. And yet, China lacked the means to train them professionally and at the same time to ensure their commitment to the imperial institutions. In other words, um, it points to the awareness among diplomats and certainly, I think, among some members of Zhong Yaman that the success of Zheng Jizhe as a diplomat was a result of many conditions that could not be easily reproduced. And so that was, I think that lays down the background for the next chapter on Shi Fucheng and his attempts at reforming diplomatic communication. Okay, let's uh, jump right into that then. So why don't you tell us a little about uh, Shui Fucheng? Uh, you said he wanted to reform uh, diplomatic communication. Um this makes sense since he is uh, kind of a reformer in general. Right. He came out of the self-strengthening movement. Um, he wrote multiple essays about calling for sweeping reform. So um, what 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 does he try to do with diplomatic communication? Can you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. Um, and so, yeah, Shi Futeng, uh, his name comes up a lot in studies of Qing modernization and when I was doing research into him, I was somewhat surprised that no one had systematically examined his life. Um, I think of him as sort of the literary genius behind the self-strengthening movement. He was a secretary to Zhang Guofen and to Li Hongzhang, and he was a ghostwriter for them. And many of their well-known memorials were actually drafted by him. The key in understanding his contribution to the information order is captured, I think, by one of his contemporaries' words. This man says, what is truly magnificent about Shi Fucheng's writing is that he can transform the most blunt and unappealing ideas into a lilt overflowing with loyalty, love, and determination. And, and so I think he realized it's all about channeling these ideas into the right discourse that can inspire cohesion um, and loyalty to the throne. Much of what I'm trying to do in this chapter is to identify the inner logic of how Xue Fucheng built this discourse that enabled the Qing to adopt many Western ideas without compromising the centrality of China. And ultimately, he resorted to the Xi Xue Zhongyuan theory, which had been quite popular in the High Qing period. And it was this idea that all Western learning ultimately came from Chinese origin. And this theory 
enabled him to give co uh, coherence and shape to the flood of information about the West that he was um, sending uh, back to China. Under the cover of this theory, any positive observation about the West um, simultaneously reaffirmed the superiority of something Chinese. This chapter also discusses how um, Xu and members of his legation worked towards reducing the communication gulf between the public sphere and the high levels of the government uh, in charge of diplomatic affairs. And I think that he realized that that was one of the key issues, is that when government is deliberating on these issues, the public is not informed. Uh, and so um, what he did was that he reformed the entire diplomatic genre. Uh, he schematized and regulated each genre, laid down its ground rules, and, and that enabled him to publicize all of his diplomatic output, including his memorials to the throne, his letters to the Zhongli Yemen, his letters to high officials, uh, certainly his journal, uh, and then his diplomatic notes to the foreign office and his instructions to the consulates and so on and so forth. Absolutely everything uh, that he wrote as a diplomat was published right away. Even when he, even before he returned uh, back to China, uh, he sent all of these things back to his house in Wuxi, which had its own private press. And, and so he released everything uh, privately. Um, and I argue that with these innovations, uh, Qing diplomats of the early 1890s were effectively the managers of public knowledge about the West. And I also examine um, some of his secretarial staff and their own work, um, not necessarily instructed, directed by him, but, but they then went on to uh, edit newspapers. Uh, there was a Wai Jiao Bao that came out in the early 1890s. Um, and so these diplomats systematically mobilized traditional intellectual resources to bolster a, a radically new interpretation of the West. And many of the well-known Confucian reformers, ranging from Kang Youwei, Liao Ping, to Zheng Guanyin and Wang Tao, they were all avid readers of Xue's works. And I, you know, I would think that his works were probably some of the most heavily plagiarized texts of the late 19th century. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of our time here, but I just wanted to give you the opportunity if you wanted to Give us any kind of takeaway points about your book um, at large. You wrote a very nice epilogue, for instance, uh, reflecting on some of these issues. But is there anything you haven't touched upon yet that you want to share with us? Um, I would just simply say that um, the epilogue um, reflected on how I came to write this book and the methodology that I used. Um, what motivated my inquiry was um, how different and heterogeneous these accounts were. And although this book is about individual diplomats, the personal stories themselves are just a way of getting at something beneath and beyond what was recorded on the content level of diplomats' output. The content was certainly important, but I was trying to get at a way of constructing a world um, and an atmosphere that cannot be reduced to the simple dichotomy of tradition versus modernity.
one kind of traditional question we have at the end of uh, all of these interviews is that we ask, uh, what are you working on now? Um, as to current research, um, I'm working on a few projects, but most immediately I'm working on the issue of transnational fugitives um, from the end of the Taiping Civil War to um, maybe the 1930s or so. I just wrapped up a uh, three-week research trip um, to London. Um, I looked at the colonial files um, in Hong Kong regarding uh, um, you know, some of these extradition or deportation cases. And so at the center of the study is um, extradition cases um, from Hong Kong. So what happens um, if the Qing government um, or the Canton authorities wanted to recover fugitives who had committed various sorts of crimes um, and then who fled to Hong Kong, the, the sort of illegal conversations. Um, and at the center of, of this project is, is really, you know, trying to understand whether um, there was an understanding of political offense, uh, which was um, a very exceptional um, uh, category of crime that is not considered as extraditable um, in international law. And so I wanted to look at um, how the Qing dealt with issue of political offenders. Um, um, so, you know, the most famous case is Sun Yat-sen. Um, and of course, Liang Qichao and Kang Youwei were, uh, you know, at various times considered political fugitives. And so um, that's also a topic of contemporary relevance. Um, and so that's something I'm hoping to work on in the next couple of years. Hmm. And that's really fascinating. And it sounds like it'll have a lot of uh, relevant themes uh, for us to, to look at. Okay. So thank you again for being on the thank show. You so much for having I really me. enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. Goodbye. Bye, nice talking to you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. Thank you for listening.